So we've been going through Abide, uh, and last week, if you weren't here because it was a yucky windstorm and mostly dirt, but a little bit of rain and no hail. Anyhow, if you weren't here, the pod bean, I think, the audio is on thekelvia.com. If you are one of those that will go back and listen to an audio and you want to spend 50 minutes doing that, Godspeed, go do that. Uh, I'm not going to rehash all of last week's, uh, but uh, we're going we're gonna to move forward. But last week we talked about evaluating our lives and diagnosing maybe any disconnection that we experience with our walk with the Lord or with Christ. And we looked at the passage that I'm going to use for the next, now, tonight, and then four more weeks after that, that uh, Jesus is the vine and we are the branches, and our main job is to stay connected to Jesus. That is the theme of what I'm trying to say. So if you get nothing else, get that. Uh, when we're not protecting our connection with Jesus, sometimes things really just don't work out like they should. Uh, we're going to look at some of those things tonight. Or when we're doing things our own way and we're just doing our life, we're living life, and sometimes it goes great, sometimes it seems like when it rains it pours. Uh, but sometimes if, we'd ever, if we do things our, just our own way and our own strength and our own wills, it can produce some unhealthy results. And uh, one of those results that can show up in our lives from time to time is the thing called emotion. Anyone have any emotions? Men, don't raise your hand. Now, that's a stereotype. Men have emotions. It's just we don't show it very often. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we all have emotions. We're, we're created emotional beings. God actually has emotions. So emotions in and of themselves are not bad. Uh, there are good emotions. There are bad emotions. But we all have emotions. Uh, but sometimes, uh, if we're doing it all our own way, you know, some emotions can show that uh, we've stopped being the branch and we're trying to be the vine. We're trying to do things that only God can do. Maybe we're trying to find answers in ourselves. Uh, we're just not producing much fruit. There's no satisfaction in life. There's no thrill. It's not, I get out of the bed and I'm excited about what God wants to do today. No, it's just doom and gloom. And... There may be just reasons for that, uh, for a variety of reasons, and I'm not going to get into all that, but sometimes our emotions can kind of be a warning sign that maybe there's a problem, and it comes out connection. If we try to, uh, I'm going to look at, tonight we're going to look at emotions a little bit. Now, I'm not talking all emotions. Uh, I'm just going to talk about four ones that, for the most part, they tend to be a negative thing, or they might be a warning sign that says, maybe there's trouble. Maybe the way I'm going at living life is not working great. Or maybe I have a connection problem with God. Any of y'all see the Disney movie Inside Out? This isn't a pro or con of Disney. Y'all never, no one's seen this movie Disney Inside Out. Thank you so much. It's a decent, now, you got to get past the Disney messaging. They are messaging for sure. Okay, yes. And I haven't seen every Disney movie, but Cars was a good one when we had kids and my son had every car. Every, every car they sold, you know, the little cars, not a real car. He has one real car now, but uh, every little car, he, he went through that phase. But this movie is about emotions, and I thought it was a creative uh, a, a, a synopsis of the movie. Riley is a happy, hockey-loving 11-year-old girl, Midwestern U.S., but her, her world turns upside down when she and her parents move to San Francisco. Dun, dun, dun. And Riley's emotions, now these are the key characters of the movie. You got joy, you got uh, sadness, you got anger, and you got fear, and you got disgust. Anyone felt any of those emotions before? They're, those are just five emotions. The rest of the movie is basically you're in the mind of this little girl and how she's processing this movie. And joy and sadness get pushed off into some stressful, weird, deep part in her mind, and they can't control what's happening, and then these other three emotions, anger, fear, and disgust, make a mess of everything, and by the end of the movie, it all turns out okay. It was an interesting take on Disney, that's not a Christian perspective, but I just say all that, like, we all have emotions, and again, emotions in and of themselves are not bad, but some of them can be warning signals. God created us in His image, and that means we both have emotions. God gets angry. He, can get, he got angry at the nation of Israel quite a few times. His wrath, when I get angry, you may say it's wrath. Something It's not the same as wrath of God, but it can be, we can all have, do that emotion. Yes, 
women, your, your husband has emotions. And typically men, we like to, our one emotion we like to go to is anger. That's, that's the one we like. Uh, and uh, anger, uh, it, uh, it can come from a lot of other, be caused by a lot of things. But when you, if you ask a guy, and I'm going back to like uh, Franklin Pastor does a thing with men's minds and women's minds, and maybe y'all have seen this or not, but women's minds are like a, like a spaghetti factory. Everything's tangled, everything connected, and, and it just goes everywhere. And then he, com- he compares that to a, a, his, a, a, a mannequin of a men's brain, and it's like nothing happening, just dead. Well, he calls in this video, he calls it the nothing box. Men like to go to the nothing box, and we just, it doesn't mean we don't feel or hear you, it just simply means that's where we like to go. It's called an escape mechanism. Uh, but I will assure you, and I'm, I'm sure men and women, every person has emotions. Some people try to cover it, some you can tell. Uh, you are very upset, angry, anxious, nervous, I can't, I don't know what the issue, what the reason is, but I'm sensing this is what, and if you've ever been in a relationship, a marriage, or a dating relationship, uh, there will become a time where one of you is having a bad day, right? I'm just, maybe your Aggie's lost when they were trying to beat up Alabama. I don't know, but you just have a bad day. Uh, emotions, though, how do you diagnose your emotions? Have you ever stopped to try to think, why, why am I feeling this way? Now, if you get into that, and this isn't a clinical study or psychological study, God makes us emotions, emotional beings. But sometimes our emotions, if you have, uh, how many of y'all drive a car? Anyone? Do y'all know you have warning signals on your car, your dashboard? You know what the dashboard is? It's where the speedometer is, whether you have oil and gas uh, in your car, if your battery is going to charge. These are the gauges you maybe notice. Maybe not, though. Sure enough, your battery's had no power for at least three weeks, but you keep driving it, and then surprise, surprise, I can't start my car. Uh, or you've been out of gas. Yeah, you push it for the last 20 miles. I can make this trip for sure. Uh, don't test it. Um, but there's other gauges on there like transmission, your, uh, your, your airbag system, your tire, TPS, whatever, the tire pressure. That's my new favorite. Oh, no, oh my gosh, I got the TPS. What's happening? I don't know. Take it to a discount tire. I'm not sure what that means. You got some of those, like, some of the warnings in all the newer cars. I don't know what, I have to get the manual out. And that gets crazy because, like, what does that even mean? And this is where you give your mechanic money. Um, but anyhow, warning signs on that. Some we pay careful attention to, other ones we don't. I'm suggesting to you today that emotions are like a warning signal on your dashboard of your life. If your go to emotion, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to list four of them, and they're on your notes, don't get ahead of me. If that's your go-to emotion, could be a problem. Could be a warning signal. Could be maybe your way's not working, how you're doing life. Maybe you've got some connection problems with God or how you're trying to solve problems. Uh, so there's that. When our way isn't working, certain emotions tend to show up in our lives. Uh, just consider, don't answer out loud, rhetorical questions. Do you feel exhausted? And are anxious. And if right now you do, because I'm going so long, I haven't even gotten very long yet, but don't answer that. Do you struggle with an addiction of any kind? Diet Coke. Uh, do you constantly lose your temper with your spouse? Do you struggle with bitterness or resentment? Are you discouraged and want to quit? And probably if we answered those questions, we would say at least yes to one of those. Oh yeah, I've been there. Well... God creates us with emotions. We have to then say, okay, well, if that's my go-to emotion and I'm constantly that way, what is, what, is make, what is causing me to become that way? We're going to look at several passages, and I put all the scriptures on there so you can go back, but you don't have to, you don't have to follow everything, and it's not going to be a Bible drill, but I am jumping around. So this is a bit of a topical study tonight. We're going to look at several characters, but we will be done at 7.30, God willing. Don't be anxious about it, whatever you do. We're going to start, and uh, biblical characters, you know, we tend to, Bible characters, we tend to kind of idolize them, and some of them are great characters, men and women, and God uses them, but there are many times in the scripture that they don't show the best emotions in their situation. So we're going to start with a guy that shows a lot of emotions, and we're going to start with Peter. 
he was a bit of an emotional, uh, yeah, he's all over the place. Uh, so we're going to look at Luke 5, and I'm going to, if you want to turn there, feel free. This is when I'm going to read quite a few verses uh, in. But uh, Jesus is calling his first disciples. He started his ministry. He is now determining who are going to be his guys, who are going to be his 12 disciples. And he's teaching along, and he comes up and he runs into Peter. So let's look at verse uh, Luke 5, verses 1 through 11. I'm in the New King James. So it was as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then Jesus got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, get the sarcasm here, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Pause. Now we just read right through, but I'm sure there was an awkward pause there. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. When they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners and others' boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. So we come to Peter and Again, he's an emotional, an emotional guy. This is the disciple. Now, this is the very beginning of his encounter with Jesus. But he swings from fierce devotion to Jesus. I will never die for you. I'll kill everyone that's coming after you. To the fearful denial of him three times after his arrest and crucifixion. To heartbroken weeping over his failure. He definitely displays some turbulent emotions in his life. But here is the beginning of his encountering Jesus. And uh, he has come back from a long night of catching no fish. He is a fisherman. When what you do has no success, when you spend all night or all day fishing and you come back with nothing, how does that feel, guys? Pretty, pretty sorry. Pretty discouraged. Pretty tired. The Bible doesn't go into all that he felt, but I'm sure he was feeling that from a long night of getting no seeing no rewards from his work. A weary of long night life's work probably weighed on him. But then you probably see that in the evidence in his response. Uh, Master, we worked hard at night and haven't caught anything, verse 4 and 5. And you have to think about Peter. This guy has been doing this his whole life. He is a fisherman. Now, if I say I go fishing and I caught nothing, you would expect that. I grew up in South Texas, but I didn't grow up fishing. So that's par for the course. That's about right. Uh, But this guy, to catch nothing, uh, yeah, he he knows what he's doing. You notice when when, when Peter says, but we've caught nothing, uh, maybe a pause. I think probably Jesus, I don't know how the facial expression, I don't know what emotions were coming, but I'm sure Jesus is pretty stoic. He's like, so what's your point? Jesus is probably simply saying, I gave you a command, why don't you just obey my, I don't need to know your situation and all your doubts and all your struggles and all that's your emotions that affecting your decision to follow me or not. Peter seems reluctant, but uh, eventually, despite his feelings, Peter yields and says, because you say so is what the NIV says, says, uh, I like that, because you say so, I'll do it. That's obedience. It's like the little kid that doesn't understand why mom and dad are asking all these things. And you don't want to get into a back and forth. We don't need to understand. You don't need to understand. I'm the mom or the dad, and you simply do it. Now, when they become the teenagers, then you have to have the explanation, the logic, and all the things. You have to explain your reasoning and all of the things. Uh, you just see here, uh, it's a command Jesus says, let's, let's get in your boat, let's go fishing, drop your nets, let's go. And eventually, who knows how long it took, Peter says, okay, I'll obey. Now, with Jesus in the boat, how many fish did Peter bring in? 
according to the text, uh, a lot. So much so that the boat almost sank, okay? A lot of fish. Uh, at this point, Peter falls down and repents. What's he repenting of? Well, I think he had some doubt that Jesus was going to make any difference in catching fish or not. I don't understand. Uh, I don't have enough faith. And so in verse 8 he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You notice when Jesus gets in the boat, there's no specific givens that Jesus doesn't say. If you take this leap of faith and you get in the boat, then this is what's going to happen. So trust me. So here we go. He just says, get in the boat, drop the nets. Let's go. It starts with get in the boat. we got to get a little bit away from the crowd because we're going to use the acoustics of the Sea of Galilee. And it's, it's going to keep some distance to me and the crowd that's trying to, to hone in on me and grab, it, grab me and all this stuff. And, uh, and so it starts that way. But then, I don't know. God, Jesus, they at some point say, let's go farther out. Let's have a teachable moment for Peter. They go farther out, and then we're going to teach the fishermen that with God, with God, with Jesus, uh, you, can, you can do great things. You can catch many fish. And the lesson, of course, I don't know if Peter got it then. He gets it eventually. Jesus says, you'll become fisher of men, not fish anymore. God has a different plan for Peter than his, his plan Peter, was a, he was on the front row to discover that uh, more than efforts and expertise, it was his connection with Jesus that would lead to production. He had spent the whole day and night trying to produce his livelihood, and I'm sure there were a lot of emotions, uh, like, uh, we've got no food for dinner, like, what am I going to sell, how are we going to make a living, I got nothing. Probably some despair in all this. But uh, sure enough, here he says, you can see that Peter understands that connection to Jesus leads to production. There's a big difference there. I'm going to produce and produce and produce and produce for God. I'm going to do all these things for God. Sometimes in my own strength, I'm going to do this for God. And that's going to create connection. And now here, Peter comes to understand, no, it's connecting with Jesus, connecting with God. When you get that power, then God works through your situation. It doesn't mean we're all going to have miracles and all of our problems are going to go away and everything's going to be solved. But our connection leads to production, I think, is a big point. We are like Peter. At times, we try hard to do well, but we just don't always get the results we want. We try to do things our way. We try to use our skills. We try to use our means. We try to problem solve. We try to, we try to make the best out of bad situations. All of these things. Just for a minute, picture, picture the scene. You're a fisherman. You're Peter. You fish all night. You have nothing. Jesus comes. Get in the boat. We're back out in that same water. But now he's kneeling down, looking at, at Jesus' feet, repenting. Why? Because he didn't believe that Jesus could do this. And there's fish all around. He's surrounded by, probably getting nibbled on by fish or whatever, just in his boat. Can you imagine what that felt like? And I'm sure that made a lasting impression. Connection with Jesus, anything's possible. Not connected to Jesus, who knows? Now let's look at the emotions. We're going to come back to that story at the end. But uh, four emotions, and emotions are, are like gauges. Sometimes these four emotions can, can at times show that we're, maybe we're a little disconnected from Jesus. Not always. Maybe we have a right to be in that emotion for a time. But I would suggest to you, if that's our emotion, we are always in, typically. And if you can ask your spouse, what's my emotion? They'll tell you. Do that privately. I'll work that out in, at, your, at your home. But uh, these are four primary emotions. That sometimes they show that we're disconnected to God and maybe God's people. We're going to look at Old Testament people. Uh, they were emotional. Again, the Old Testament people are before Christ. So Jesus hadn't, hadn't come yet. Okay, So they're going by the law, which emphasized work harder, be holier, produce more. Do more, do more, do more. Do all these sacrifices. Do, do, do. Works oriented. But the law ultimately showed that trying to do things uh, our way is insufficient. Poor Israelites, they didn't have the cross and everything, and now they do, but they still miss it sometimes. But, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're doing what the, law, what the law commands. In the Old Testament, the people of God themselves are sometimes referred to as a vine in Psalms 8.8. 8. Interesting that in the New Testament, Jesus comes and says, I am the true vine. By the way, that's the passage I'm using, John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. So God is, or Jesus is, the vine. We're connecting to him. It's where we get our life source, we get our power. So as we go through these examples, 
I just want you to do a little inventory of your dashboard of your life, of your emotions. Now, if you have one of these emotions, I'm not going to say, don't come, I need to repent to Keith. I was angry once. Oh my gosh, what happened? I'm like, that's okay. But probably if we're, if we're honest, it's not a righteousness of God. They violated the righteousness of God and I'm going to overturn some tables, right? It's probably not why I'm angry. I'm angry that that guy cut me off and I'm angry that Midland makes it difficult for me to get from church to home. Every time. They've done Big Spring. Now they've done Wadley and Midkiff. I don't know how I'm getting home. And there's anger. There you go. Hypothetically. I'm just saying hypothetically. This isn't a time for confession. Uh, so here's some four emotions that could show up uh, sometimes when our way isn't working. Okay? And uh, the first that I want to talk about, and I, uh, this has been a good study because sure enough I see these, I see all these emotions in my life, which probably you'll see them in your life too. The first one is discouragement. Discouragement. These are not all emotions you can feel. And these emotions, sometimes they're like, I got a, I got a, I got a four. I got all of them. I, got, I went from all, I just went all of them. You know, well, there you go. This is the way me. But we start with some discouragement. And what is that? It's the loss of confidence or enthusiasm. Probably experience it. It, it sets in when what you experience is different than what you expected. The phrase would be, I wasn't expecting it to be like this. It's that feeling when you step on the scale and the number hasn't changed, even though you're trying to do more and eat better and all the things, and you work out at least a couple times a year, a week, a year. If you do a year, that's better than nothing, but not a lot, but it's a little bit. It's the feeling you get when you work long hours and you've done your best, but you still get passed over for the promotion. You study, but you don't get the grade. You feel like the interview went well, but you don't get the call back. You walk out to the mailbox, and all you find is another letter from the collection agency. Life is not going as you expected. The story that we're going to look at for discouragement is Hannah, and I'm not going to just trust me. Want to go to 1 Samuel? You can, but you don't have to. Hannah, and we don't know a lot about her, and it's probably not, maybe you do. Uh, she, she was discouraged. Well, why is she discouraged? She's discouraged because she has no child, while her husband's other wife, Peninnah, produces multiple children. So she is barren, cannot produce an heir, children. And then the second one, this is not about polygamy and saying it's all good. Anytime you had that in the Old Testament, by the way, it ended pretty bad. Uh, one wife and one husband is probably the way to do it. Uh, but they did all sorts of stuff back then. Um, so before we get to her emotional state and maybe how she dealt with her discouragement, uh, this other wife produces multiple children and then also... That other wife constantly mocks her. So, infertility today is something that women go through and it's very difficult to go through. I would imagine it's very difficult and people have to go through it. But it's just, it was just as difficult then. Back then, a woman's primary role was to provide an heir, some children that can work, that can keep the family business going and work in the fields and work on all the stuff and do all the stuff. Uh, you provide those children, and to not be able to do that become very discouraging. So Hannah is very anguished. She, she weeps. She doesn't eat. Uh, it says, according to 1 Samuel 1, uh, she's discouraged. Most of us can handle disappointment for a while. Uh, but her disappointment, it says in 1-7, that this went on year after year. So when you have disappointment, and then I put it on your notes, and then you have disappointment plus extended amount of time. Who knows when it's going to end? Maybe you'll never have children. That equals discouragement. And you can do that equation in your life in any situation. You get enough disappointment for enough long of a time, and you give up hope. You become discouraged. There's never going to be a difference. There's never going to be a change. Nothing's ever going to make a difference. We've all been there. However, you see, it's not the end of the story. On one occasion, the family's annual journey, they're going to Shiloh, and uh, they do this once a year. Hannah, it says, and uh, Hannah stood up, or it says, Hannah arose in the New King James Version. So that word arose, or she stood up, it's not just physical posture. Hannah is basically saying, I, I'm, I'm done carrying all of my pain. I'm going to be desperate enough to stand up and hand my grief to God. And she has this conversation with God. 
uh, verse 10, and she was in bitterness of soul and she prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. She told the Lord that if he would give her a son, uh, she would give him back to God. So she has this emotional experience. Lay it all on the altar. This God, this is you. This is yours. This is what I have. And I'm, I'm sharing everything and all my emotions and anguish and all the things. Because God, you can handle it. And it's in your hands. She gives it to God and says it's in your hands. She's not negotiating. She's surrendering. There's a difference. God doesn't promise Hannah anything. But after praying, it says in verse 18, Anna ate and her face was no longer sad. Interesting that her situation never had changed. But she was focusing on connecting to God. She had reset her connection to God. And uh, look on later on in the story. Sure enough, God does give her a son. It's Samuel, uh, whom Hannah does indeed give to God. If discouragement is, one of your, discouragement is one of your emotions, do like Hannah. I don't have all your answers, and I'm not saying your situation doesn't. Some discouragement maybe is, is, just goes along with it, but cry out to God, put your hope in God, and ask for His strength to get up and keep moving forward. Don't, don't give up. God can work in the darkest of our days to bring light, and we don't even know how that is. But God does that. So there's discouragement. But then the next one is, is frustration or maybe anger. It's the feeling of being upset or annoyed, uh, especially uh, because of an inability to change or achieve something. It starts with maybe a mild irritation. That's the traffic. Or maybe you're already deranged with that. I don't know. Mild irritation. It escalates to annoyance, indignation, eventually maybe rage. And basically what you're saying is, I've had enough. That's it. I'm done. You're frustrated. Flip over to Genesis 4. We'll look at this passage. Genesis 4. Y'all know the story of Cain and Abel. Good old brothers. I have three brothers. Two other brothers. Sorry, I'm a third. I'm the middle one. I'm the, I'm the cream in the middle of the Oreo cookie. I'm the best. Middle children are that way. We get to do that to survive. Okay. Uh, but here you just got two brothers. And the first two brothers of Adam and Eve. And you would think, oh man, God just created them. It's going to be great. Smooth sailing. After all, parents, y'all know, it all goes the way according to plan. You just follow the manual and everything goes, uh, goes right. A lot of sarcasm tonight. Sorry, I don't know why. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife. Y'all know what that means in biblical terms. And she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry. You think? And his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And uh, why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. Its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Your anger. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. It's a good story. Really interesting. Murder mystery. Not really. Brother killed brother. This is the first emotion of frustration in God's word. And it grew. He struggled with it, and it grew inside. Eventually, it led him to murder his brother. Why is he so angry? God asked that question. Why are you so angry? Rhetorical. Cain, he felt disrespected because his offering wasn't accepted. Abel seems to be the favored son because his offering was accepted. And I can never measure up to your standards. God, mom and dad, all that. And he'd had enough, and eventually he, he kills his brother. God says... Why are you that way? God's basically asking, why don't you just humble yourself and reconnect to God? If you do a great offering, I'll accept it. I'm God, and I can accept what I want and not accept what I want. I'm God. Anger that you don't go, and, 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 and I do think, uh, yeah, everyone expresses their anger in a different way, but you all know what it looks like. We've all done it. We've all had a spouse that's done it. We've all had a child that's done it. And maybe, whatever. Everyone does it, okay? 
But anger, anger is like a secondary emotion. There's something that's causing that anger. Dig in. What's causing the anger? If you're constantly angry, maybe it's disappointment. I just, I, I thought it was going to be this and this and nothing, you know, that kind of thing, and nothing's going to change, so I'm just going to be angry. Guys, it's one of our go-to emotions. I'm not going to say women don't do anger. For sure, women do anger too, but it's a little different. Sometimes anger, when guys do it, we just check out. I'm not going to talk about that topic because it makes me so angry. I'm just going to check out, remove myself, go in the nothing box. The less that we abide in Jesus, the more easily I am bothered by others. We start viewing the anger for sure can make you very self-centered, which all these emotions can. You're not like me. And this is what you do that makes me angry. So therefore, I have the right to not like you. And that's it. Is that a godly way to look at people? Thank goodness God didn't do that to me. When I did something, and man, the way I am, I'm a sinner. And thank goodness he didn't look at me that way. The less time I spend remaining in God, the less patience I have in me. It's a fruit of the Spirit to have patience, to have understanding, to have empathy, to have love. And forgiveness. Be careful with anger. It can grow, and it can take you a lot farther than you want it to go. And you, 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 put a, a, you can sever relationships. In families, it can ensure that this family for sure, it has long ongoing consequences if you don't do some investigation and say, I got a problem. I need to repent of my anger. The next one, fatigue. Fatigue is extremely physical and this is mental tiredness that comes from a prolonged period of concentrated exertion. You say basically, I'm worn out. I'm done. I'm exhausted. I got nothing left to give. Uh, it's the way that the person, there are some kinds of people that just never slow down or maybe they never learn the word no, say yes to everybody and everything. And I, and I just go, 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 go. I'm the energizer bunny. There's nothing I cannot do and I will do it all. I will juggle it all. Men and women, we can do it all. Eventually you're going to crash. Your body physically will tell you you're doing, you're taking on more than you can handle. Uh, but, you know, it's that person that's a busy, you know, this is just a busy season, and it's been a busy season for the last four years. That's more than just a busy season. Maybe you got too much on your plate. It's just one more thing, so let's add it to your schedule. Think of your schedule, you're in our schedule, like, uh, got any, got some major body, got some workout people in here, I can tell. Oh, yeah, y'all been in the gym. I've seen y'all. I haven't seen y'all in the gym, by the way. Y'all go to the gym? Anyhow, probably at home in the garage. I get what you're saying. When you're at the gym, you know, you do the... I didn't go to the gym for until I was maybe 35. So, there you go. Um, moving on. I would do things like basketball. I like to do running things where it's just fun. There's winners and losers, and we just play. And gym just didn't seem fun. But now I can't do all those running things, so now I go to the gym. It's not really fun, but it's, you do what you got to do. But imagine you're bench pressing. Okay, I didn't know what a bench press was, but y'all seen it where a guy lays down, you're on flat on your back, and you got the weight there, and uh, and it's gonna come off the thing. It's gonna be right here, and then I'm gonna go up and down as many times as I can. Right? Pretty simple. Well, when you first start the gym, and if we each did those, you know, maybe a 45 pound weight, you know, pretty. If I just lift that by myself, no problem, no problem. But you, uh, when you bench press, you add more weight, right? You start with maybe, maybe you start with 225s. Of course, the bar itself is weight too, in case you don't know. I don't know how much it is. Kirk Dunn knows. I don't know. I just know 245s, that's about my peak. Okay, I'm not the bench press expert. Um, but if you can see some guys at the gym, they add on 35s and you add on some 25s. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's just going to rest right here and not go anywhere. That's why you have people spotting you, whatever. Think of your life like a bar that you're trying to bench press. Maybe your 45-pound weight represents your full-time job. 35-pound weight represents your home responsibilities. 25-pound weight represents the time you set aside to exercise, stay in shape. 10-pound weight is your commitment to volunteer at the church and go to church. 5-pound weight is the one you added when you started to run the carpool three days a week. And one of those plates by themselves is pretty manageable, but as they're all each added to the bar, the whole thing becomes quite heavy. And eventually, what we do is we underestimate the compounding effect of adding one more thing to the whole. 
The result is, at some point, the bar becomes too heavy. And the body will let you know, you're exhausted. can't do anymore. You're not the Energizer Bunny. And you'll be worn out. And you'll be fatigued. That's one thing that could happen. But there's also, with fatigue, there's some people that uh, it's, it's simply the speed by which we live today. Everything is immediate. Everything. And if it's not immediate, then we go to anger. Why is my Wi-Fi not working? Oh my gosh, I can't survive. Well, I've lived without Wi-Fi. You can live. But uh, everything is immediate. I need to order Amazon and it's here immediately. More, faster, by the words, those are the words that mark our lives. But connections require margin and time. You get that? More and faster are the words that mark how we live. But connections require margin and time. It doesn't happen overnight. And you've got you to have room for some connection with God and our other people. Do you have room in your life for some meaningful relationships with God and other people? Excessive business is truly a widespread epidemic. Uh, for sure, we live in it right now. It's nothing new. It's been around a long time. 1 Kings 19, uh, you can go there. You don't have to, but I'm just going to... It's the story of Elijah. And, uh, and he realizes that this story that... he. <laughs> Uh, light bulb, his way isn't working. In 1 Kings 19.4, he says this, And it came, he came and sat down under a broom tree. He prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. He was worn out and feeling despair. Well, we need to rewind. How did Elijah get to this state of being? Well, rewind three and a half years earlier. If you know the story, uh, Elijah warned King Ahab that because of the nation's sin and rebellion against God, there's going to be this huge famine. This drought is going to be brought on the land. Like, whatever. Uh, It actually happened. And uh, exactly like Elijah said. And so because of that, he has to be on the run for his life. And he's hiding out thinking they're going to kill me because he is to blame for this. The prolonged drought comes, but it, it ends quite dramatically. Elijah comes out of hiding. He challenges 450 false prophets to contest to a contest to determine the one true God. You know the story at Mount Carmel, and uh, we're going to have we're going to have that sacrifice there, and 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 then y'all are going to have yours, you prophets of Baal, and, and y'all are going to pray and do all your thing to yours. But then I'm going to pour extra liquid on on my God because He can handle it. And of course they pray and dance and do all their things and magic and all the stuff and nothing happens and then of course Jehovah God brings the fire down and everything's burned up and wiped out. That's the story in 1 Kings 18. Pretty, pretty mountaintop experience. I would say for Elijah, he's probably feeling pretty good. He's walking with some strut. He's got a little, yeah, yeah, that's my God, right? That's God. That's, that's Elijah right here. He can see the power of God. He's filled with the power of God so much he runs 18 miles in the rainstorm. Oh, God brings rain, by the way. That's big news when you're in a drought. He brings rain and he runs and he tells Jezreel and all. And he talks some smack to her probably. All that's the backdrop to 1 Kings 19. For more than three and a half years, Elijah, he persevered under life-threatening situations. He's been used in a powerful way. He stood strong while facing overwhelming odds. He was finally vindicated through a huge victory. This should have been a time of energy and refreshment. Instead, Elijah is completely burned out, he's exhausted, and he's depressed, and he's desperate. Now, a number of factors contributed to Elijah's state of being. He had extended isolation. He had difficult conversations. He strained. He had some strained relationships with speaking for God. People don't like what he's saying. He's bringing some words they don't want to hear. He probably has some spiritual warfare going on. He had physical exertion. He's in the wilderness. But we would not think that a great victory would be exhausting. But it's not really that uncommon to find ourselves in a valley of fatigue after you've experienced success on a mountaintop. Uh, Michael Phelps, you know the name? Olympic, probably the best swimmer ever. You know the flap, you know the... He does all that, like his little fins or whatever, going crazy when he's about to dive in and do his thing. He got the most Olympic gold medals for any diver swimmer of all time, right? Did that for many, many years. Many Olympics. I don't know how many he went to. Four or five... He was checked in for depression after it. Many Olympic athletes have that thing. You, you train, you train, you train, you achieve, you achieve, you achieve, and then there's a huge letdown. 
I'd suggest to you, even in my life, I go for a doctor at night, and I, that's the goal, and you go and you go, and then you get the paper, and you're like, nothing changes. Now what? It happens. So he has this great moment with God, and then uh, not soon after, he's, he's desperate. But you see also the enemy of connection. One of the enemies is, is isolation, and Elijah does this. Of course, they're coming after him in First uh, Kings 19, 3 and 4. It says he arose and he ran for his life. He went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. But he himself, by alone, he went a day's journey into the wilderness. There's probably a pandemic or something in their day and everyone had to be isolated. That was a joke, but probably not too funny. Probably too soon to bring that joke up. <clears throat> Elijah isolates himself. When our way isn't working and we feel exhausted and depressed, sometimes what you most need is what you least want. If, if anyone in here thinks isolation is really good for, for people, the last three years, mental illness, and you can call it whatever you want, depression, anxiety, PTSD, all of the things that, that the young generation are experiencing, and teachers know this because kids are often, and we clinically we try to diagnose all the things, and, but ultimately it's isolation. We're not created to be isolated. This isn't introverted, extroverted. We're created for relationships. You want to make your situation worse? Isolate yourself for a long period of time. And your mind and the enemy will go round and round in your situation. And you'll self-diagnose and what you've done is you've isolated yourself from the family of God, from the church of God, from God himself. Elijah isolated himself. God knows Elijah's situation, knows he's fatigued. The alarm is blaring. I'm not sure if Elijah gets it. Well, he's saying, I want to die. It should be a big alarm. God hears it and helps him rest and reconnect. 1 Kings 19, 5 and 6. Then as he lay down, Elijah, and he slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. God is tender and he's patient with Elijah. He lets him rest. Sometimes when we're exhausted, the best thing you can do is take a nap. Amen, amen. Sunday afternoon naps. Who needs to watch that game? Take a nap. They'll win or they'll lose. Elijah sleeps, then he eats and he drinks, and he goes back to sleep. Notice what God doesn't say. He doesn't say you're burning daylight or you can sleep when you die. He doesn't say those things. God understands rest. From the beginning of creation, he created on six days, and then he rested the seventh day. God has always been about rest. Maybe you just need a break and have an unproductive time to reconnect with God and others. Maybe you're just going, going, going. You need to pause. Hit pause. Learn the word no. It's okay. Heed God's advice in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Are you fatigued? The last one is anxiety. It's the feeling of worry or uneasiness. Typically, when we face an imminent event or an uncertain outcome that we have no control over, it is this phrase, I don't know what to do. Nothing works. I keep saying that on all these, but yeah, I don't know what to do. It shows up as fear or maybe nervousness or irritability, sleeplessness. It can produce breathing difficulties and different physical problems, chest pain, high blood pressure, headaches, other physical problems. Worry. I worry about what might or might not happen in the future. Anxiety comes when it hits us how little control we actually have over what happens. I listen to a lot of Ramsey's podcasts, and I like, I like a phrase, I don't know if he said it, or John Deloney, his counselor guy. Control what you can control. Why are you worrying about the things now? You know, there are world events that happen. Hamas attacking Israel. That's a bad thing that happens. But can I control what happens over there? No. Am I going to worry about it? The news would want you to worry about it 24-7. It's urgent news. It's breaking news. 24-7. Be on edge. Be anxious. Everyone be anxious. Worry, worry. Uptight, uptight, uptight. 
I can't control it. Why not just have some peace and say, there's a sovereign God. Now, I'm going to vote for leaders that hopefully take global strategies that would side with Israel, but whatever. It's not politics I'm talking about tonight. I'm just saying. There will be urgent things. There will be notifications. If you have this device, it will notify you on every daggum new app you have. It will tell you, should you want new new note? Do you want to be notified? Everything. Yes, I do. Why? So we just constantly are exhausted and anxious about everything. That is not the way God wants us to live. But it does hit us how little we control over what happens in our life. We live in a time and culture in which people have never been more determined to be autonomous, independent. I can do everything. But yet at the same time, everything feels extremely uncertain. Thank you, Internet. Thank you, newsreels. Thank you, stories. Thank you, Instagram. Thank you, Snapchat. Thank you. I need to know what everyone and most of y'all are older in here. Some of y'all are a little younger. Grandkids, okay? If you've ever been around teenagers or college-age kids, I've been around, my kids are that age right now, and I, I'm going a little bit long tonight, sorry. Uh, it's a little bit long. Hang with me. Uh, my son, Mason, he's a freshman at A&M, and so I got to see him. Chris and I got to see him for the first time in seven weeks since we dropped him off at A&M. But it turned into bring our friends, and we're going to fly in from high school friends, and they're going to go to the Alabama game. And I'm going to barely see my son. It's kind of like a wedding, maybe, you know, a wedding. You barely see your daughter or son as you get married, but I think it happened. But uh, like, we're picking up, we're going, well, whatever. I saw Mason maybe a night or whatever. But as you have it, uh, him and his friends, okay, and, and Christy and I stay at my brother's house. He lives in Cyprus, and he's nice enough to let us stay there. But they have some younger kids, and they're in the stage of, of trying to manage how much kids use this. It's a real problem. And I'm like, I back whatever decisions y'all make. You put your timelines on whatever, whatever. And we do a day of that when Mason and them are at College Station. But then Mason and, and his friends and Maddie's, Maddie's here, they come back. And now we're all in the house for a day or two. And the minute there's a spare moment, and I know this because even in the car ride, I pick up kids from the airport. They're all on their bike. They don't even talk. They're texting they're, they're, uh, I don't even know all the platforms they use. Instagram, I think. I don't know. Uh, but they're just constantly on their phones. And then when the NFL comes on, we're doing Fantasy League. And we're constantly, they're watching, they're watching the TV of the game. But they're also watching their Fantasy on the phone. And they're, they're just, just always going. That's the generation they are. For me to watch that, and I'm just one generation removed. I'm exhausted by just watching. I don't want to know all that. I don't even want to be on Instagram. I barely want to be on Facebook. Barely. It's no wonder that generation is anxious. You're constantly comparing yourself to everyone else and what they do. Every vacation, what they go to. All the good things. People on social media only put the best stuff. And if you put something that's like, man, what's wrong with you? Why are you putting that depressing thing? Don't you know this is, this is the platform of we're all so good? Right? The enemy just has a heyday with that. And anxiety is something that is running rampant in our generation and below, for sure. And I don't think the three years of pandemic helped them at all. Anxious in, in many ways. The emotion of anxiety alerts us to the reality that instead of connecting with God and depending on God's power when we're vulnerable and powerless, we make it about ourselves. Remember the story of Moses? And i got to go pretty quick because I don't want to keep you... Remember the story of Moses... Uh, God's ready to send him on mission to free his people from Egypt. Moses hears his assignment, and uh, he, has, he experiences heightened vulnerability and lack of control. Uh, you're asking me to do what, God? Burning bush and all this stuff. Exodus 3.11, uh, Moses explains his anxiety, and then uh, he says, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Uh, he's struggling with some insecurity, some uncertainty of what's happening. Now, there's some reasons why he had already tried and failed. He took some matters into his own hand. He, he was impulsive and he killed an Egyptian some 40 years earlier. And he beat that fellow Hebrew, uh, the, the one that was soldier that was beaten the Hebrew. He, he killed him and he had to flee for his life into the wilderness with his uncle and all that stuff. Uh, he's also worried about what would people think? What if the Israelites asked me who sent them, who sent me to them? What if they don't believe me? Doesn't anxiety always make us self 
focus. It does. There's been a lot of research into why the rise of social media has given away to rise of anxiety or why it, it, it causes us to obsess about our own lives, our own image, and the ways others perceive us. It's a book of faces. And I need to know what everyone thinks of my post and how many likes. Exodus 4.10, he, he says he doesn't have what it takes. Uh, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent neither, but before you nor sense have I spoken to your servant, but I am slow to speech, slow of tongue. God doesn't seem to make sense to Moses. And what God responds to him basically is a connection that uh, God is the one who gave him that tongue. So trust me and go do your insecurity thing and just trust me that I'll bring the security. So the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seen or the blind? Have not I the Lord? And therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. The task seems dangerous, overwhelming. He's anxious about it. Uh, it's different than anything he's pictured. Uh, there's this tendency, sometimes the older we get, the more safe and predictable we, we want our life to be. Is that not true? Uh, it's the way we want it. Well, Moses is up there in his years. He spent 40 years tending the sheep, living in the wilderness, and now God asks him to do this crazy thing. And he's got some anxiety. He pleads with God in verse 13, Oh my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send it. Send it to somebody else. God doesn't focus on Moses' competency, but he emphasizes the connection he has with God. Verse 12, so he said, I will certainly be with you, God says. The God of your fathers who has sent me to you, I am who I am. That's Yahweh. That's like the ultimate name of God. I am has sent me to you. The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. God will do this. Trust me. Joseph just needed to remember to live in connection with God. God's way always works. So with Moses, his anxiety was focusing on his circumstances. And he was focused on these circumstances he couldn't control. Problems he couldn't fix. Situations that were beyond his capabilities. And as we go through anxiety in our lives, there's just a few ways that we might treat it in anxiety. The first is maybe you just numb it. I just take a pill and it will numb that. By the way, a lot of doctors, that's the first thing they'll do is they'll diagnose prescription drugs and we'll just get on that at a young age and you just get it. I'm not a doctor, I'm not a clinician, but I'm saying you can't solve spiritual problems with uh, drugs. There could be more to it. I want a quick fix. I want a cheap substitute for connecting with God's presence. It's maybe not just drugs. Maybe, maybe it's other drugs. Maybe it's gambling. Maybe excessive shopping. I don't have that problem. Uh, so we numb it. Another way to numb it is maybe you just look at a screen. You watch, you know, I'm a little anxious about filling the blanks, so I'm going to watch all the YouTube videos on that, and I'm going to binge the next flick series. Maybe I'll watch a little pornography. I'm just going to numb it. Not think about it. Or maybe you go into control mode. I'm anxious about filling the blank, and I'm anxious about a lot of things. Maybe I, I want to control my spouse, or I want to control my coworker. I want to control my boss. I want to control my subordinate. I want to control my children. I want to control my grandchildren. How's that working out for you? I'm learning. I can't control my college kids. So, as your kids are getting older, you have to learn to let go. You have provided the boundaries. You've provided the, the guardrails on the highway of their life. And now you just trust that that has... And, and you let them go. You, they, they, they spread their wings and they fly. And they will make some mistakes just like we have. And you pray and hope by the grace of God they learn. And it's not too late. But when they do make mistakes, they come back and you're their parent to love them like God loves us. You have to let go. You can't control everything. That could be a big, a big cause of anxiety for parents and, and grandparents. But maybe the anxiety is an invitation to be closer to God. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, Paul is revealing some anxiety he's feeling. He says in, in there, We were burdened beyond measure, above stress, uh, strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death on ourselves. He thinks, yeah, we're, we could die. There's some, uh, there's some difficulties here we're facing. But then he says the reason why he and his companions had to face that adversity. And he says it in the key verse. That we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. 
The anxiety he was dealing with gave him the opportunity to connect with the presence and power of God in a way he had never experienced before. Some of your anxiety may be a, a warning sign, a, a way that God is saying, rest in me, come to me. Stop trying to control and do everything your way. You can't control that. That relationship or that event or whatever, that's not your job to control that. God can handle it. So pray to me, talk to me, let me handle it. Don't worry about tomorrow. What is tomorrow? You know, the scripture that Jesus says, what good is it to worry about tomorrow? Just face today. But we live in a culture that's constantly anxious. Moses eventually, later on in his story, he learns that connection with God is, is the only thing that matters. You know, you fast forward a little bit, the Israelites are facing the Red Sea, and there's that body of water, and the Egyptian armies are closing in, and they got all the weapons ready just to wipe them out. And you can imagine the people, the Jews, turned to Moses and like, what? You got us here for what? And Moses had learned, he says in Exodus 14, 14, the Lord will fight for you and you should hold your peace. He had learned. It's not Moses' strength. It's not Moses' ability or skills. It's who he's representing and God will take care of it. He had faith. His confidence in his connection with God. When your and I ways are not working, we're facing a certain future and situations you can't control, be still and let God fight for you. As I close, when you're feeling these emotions, discouragement, fatigue, frustration, anxieties, anxiety. Some of y'all are anxious right now because I'm going along. Uh, I close with Peter, okay? In Peter's case, remember in the boat, and the fishing, the teachable moment for him, he probably felt discouragement at not catching any fish. He was probably fatigued from fishing all night and all day. He's probably frustrated at catching nothing and probably anxious. What is he going to eat or sell? He probably had the trifecta, which is the, all the emotions at once. And here is Jesus that says, come out, and uh, he's going to make this command, drop your nets, and God expects him to obey. Thank goodness for Peter. He did obey. When Jesus is in the boat of our lives, it will never be the same. Jesus changes the circumstances and everything. He did for Peter. He does for us. He turns out that Jesus knows more about every area of his life. He knows more about fishing than Peter. He knows more about his job than he does. He knows more about your spouse and your children than you do. He knows more about your body than you. He knows more about you than you do. He created you. So when we don't feel like it, sometimes uh, we just need to do a humble submission. That's what, that's what Peter did. He humbly uh, submitted to Jesus in his way. He was self-aware enough to say, uh, it's impossible without Jesus. I've got to go. I've got to do what he says and trust him. So it starts with tonight, as I close, uh, recognize uh, the consequences of maybe your disconnection or my disconnection from God. I'm not going to say all discouragement or all anger or all fatigue is bad, but it could be a warning sign. Could be a warning sign that I have a connection problem with my creator. So as you eternally wrestle with that, I would say uh, maybe uh, humbly submit to God. Say, I repent. Uh, bow down at the feet of Jesus when the fish are all around you and say, I see God that it's impossible without you and only you do these things in my life and you created me and you know me. And I'm going to come, I'm going to surrender doing it my way and I'm going to try to do it your way. We get to that point, then John 15, 5, when Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. What is one indicator that you need to reset your connection with Jesus? Maybe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this, uh, this lesson is not about creating doubt. It's not about uh, second-guessing whether we're saved or not saved. It's about are we connected to you and do the results and do the fruits of our life show that we are connecting well with you? Or does it reveal that we're doing it our own other way? And if we're honest, we all at times do it our own way. Thank goodness you're, you're there to, to forgive us when we confess it to you. But what are, what are our emotions saying? How, how we are. Are we anxious constantly? Are we fatigued? Are we discouraged? Are we angry? For various reasons. Show it to us this week. And then bring us back next week to say, well, I want to try something different. Help us to connect with something that can 
can bring satisfaction, can, can quench that thirst, can fill that void in our lives that only you can do. May we humbly submit to you and your leadership in our life. Give you the glory for what you're doing and through it. Thank you for being a God that loves us and knows each of our situations better than we do. And I pray that we would have faith and trust you even in the difficulties of this life. Trust that you're working all things to the good to those who love you and live for you. Thank you in the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.